So as we continue looking at the statement of faith, uh, any quick thoughts and review from last week on the doctrine of God? Anything that you thought about during the week or are thinking about now as I'm asking the question? Or? Okay. We don't necessarily have to. I just wanted to, if anybody had any further thoughts, just to take opportunity to discuss those. And so this week, uh, we're going to do the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as I mentioned at the end of last week, I think it's fairly typical in these sorts of discussions to have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as far as the order. And so that's something that we could discuss if we want to change that down the road. But in terms of the statement of faith, the Holy Spirit is the next topic. Uh, so let's start with the first phrase there where it says, The Holy Spirit is a divine person, equal with God the Father and God the Son, and of the same nature. Why is that phrase important? Okay. Okay, good, good. Uh, one of the particular errors that this guards against is the idea that the Holy Spirit is some sort of impersonal force. Um, you know, I, not obviously the idea of Star Wars and all that came much later than that, but because that's part of our culture, sometimes people might read the Bible and think of the Holy Spirit in terms of a force, an energy, a power that can be manipulated in some way. But in reality, the Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, the fact that he is equal with the Son and the Father is, I think, seen on the back of the page there, John 14. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that will be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all the nation, baptizing them not just in the name of the Father or of the Son, but also of the Holy Spirit. So the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then you see also, I think, Acts 5 is probably one of the strongest supports for the Holy Spirit being a person, uh, or being God, I should say. Why has uh, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it then you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The arguments for him being a person as opposed to a force, uh, one of the key components of that would be the idea that the Holy Spirit is referred to as he, not as it, in a number of the passages where... Uh, for example, John 16, 13, middle of the third page there, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Obviously, that then could lead into, and we don't necessarily need to discuss it in length, I'll just raise it as something for you to consider sort of on your own time, why is it that God is referred to with a masculine pronoun as well? I'm just going to leave that question for you to think about. <laughs> going back to our phrases, though, any further thoughts on the idea of what it means that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, equal, and of the same nature? Right, right. Triune God. Good. Uh, what about the next phrase, that he was active in the creation? What would we see, I guess, in relation to this phrase, what would we see as the difference between the role of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in creation? Because I think the Bible would teach that God, in all three of his persons, was active in creation. What's that? Oh, sure. Okay, good. So there's a... There's a plural. Mm -hmm. Okay. 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 Um, let's see here. Maybe just to point out that any part of the Godhead does not act on its own. 
Sure. I think it will probably be clarified more next week when we look at Christ's role in creation with connection to uh, the phrase in Proverbs and, and some of that, that uh, sort of the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in terms of creation. But I agree that what was said that the, the Spirit uh, executes, carries out. I think in connection with the idea of the Spirit giving spiritual life, we would probably see a connection with Him being involved in the giving of physical life as well. What about the next phrase, that in his relationship to the unbelieving world, he restrains the evil one until God's great purpose is fulfilled? Right. So here's a question. If the passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 never specifically says the Holy Spirit is the one who is restraining, is that a clear enough statement for us to have this as one of the things in the statement of faith that someone must agree to? For example, Let's say that someone says that I read 2 Thessalonians 2 and I believe that it's referring to human government and that is the, the one, the thing that is restraining evil until it is taken out of the way. I'm not saying that's a correct interpretation. I'm just saying what if someone said that? Because the he who restrains, he who lets in the King James is a little bit vague. It's not specific. Okay. All right. So my point in saying that is I think that we would definitely agree that this is true. I think that we would potentially have to think about is there a passage that supports that idea more clearly than the Second Thessalonians 2 passage? And I think if you look at... John 16, 8 to 11, which leads us into the next phrase. He, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. I think that that is very clear, that he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But is that the same thing as restraining the evil one until God's purpose is fulfilled? Again, I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just saying that it's something that we should think about uh, for example, I'm trying to think of another good example. Um, there are places in the New Testament where there is a dispute whether the word spirit is referring to the human spirit, as in, you know, be renewed in your spirit versus be renewed in the spirit. My point would be not that we shouldn't believe and understand and know those verses. My point would be to say, I'm not sure if we should base a phrase in the statement of faith on one of those passages that is less clear, if there's one that's more clear in supporting that doctrine. And so that's something that I was thinking about, and I didn't come up with a, with a specific verse that would be a better verse for that one, but something perhaps as you think about it during the week, is there a verse that would support that phrase better? Uh, Convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment uh, clearly is a quotation from John 16, 8 through 11. Um, when you read that, convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, what do you think of? What, is that, what meaning does that convey to you?
Okay. So when it says he convicts of sin, you would say that that would be he convicts us that we are sinners? Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly an element of conscience involved in that, for sure. Um, what's that? Sure, sure. The, the one thing that would be different from conscience or mean that it's not exactly, it's not only conscience, would be the fact that it says when he comes, he will convict the world of these things, which seems to indicate that he's doing it potentially in a different way than he had previously. But yes, I would say conscience is the, is the tool that he uses to convict us. Uh, when it's convicts of righteousness, what, what does that mean? Okay. Doing the work in our hearts that we can't do on our own. Okay. What's that? I'm sorry. Right, and he speaks to us through the Word of God, obviously, and so that would be, uh, if we're to be righteous. The standard for righteousness is God. The way that we know what God's righteousness is like is through the scriptures. And so we certainly need to follow that, definitely. Uh, what about of judgment, that he convicts of judgment? What does that phrase mean? Okay. Right. And looking at John 16:11 on the back page there it says concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged the holy spirit part of his ministry is i think a making i think we could say potentially making people aware that following satan is a losing cause for one thing because um the 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 death burial and resurrection of christ was sort of the nail in the coffin for Satan's schemes to try to thwart God's plan. And so, even though Satan has knowledge, obviously, of what God was doing, I think, to a certain extent, him trying to thwart the death of Christ probably felt like, this is my moment, my opportunity to undo what God is doing, and at the death of Christ, it seemed like he had succeeded, but at the resurrection, I'm sure there was an awareness that I failed. Now, that doesn't mean that he stops trying, because clearly we see at least two more massive instances of that in the tribulation and in the, uh, the battle following the millennial kingdom. But I think that there is an awareness that his time is limited, his, his rule is, is shortened. And so my, my point in asking those questions is, I think that it's never bad for us to quote Scripture. I would never say you shouldn't quote Scripture. My point would be to say, can we clarify that a little bit? So if we said instead of he convicts of sin and of righteousness of judgment, that he convicts men that they are sinners, that he shows us we need to be righteous, that he proclaims the victory of Christ over Satan because he's judged, something along those lines, it would be a little bit more wordy, but it might be a little bit more clear as to what we mean by that phrase. Yes, Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's certainly a possibility. Uh, probably the question is going to be... Um, there's two questions. There's a, a, 
an ethical question, and then there's a practical question. There's probably more, but those are the two that are popping in my head. The ethical question is, to what extent can we change the statement of faith while remaining true to the intent of those who wrote it originally for our church? And I think clarifying a phrase as to what it means is one thing. I think, um, I think adding a whole lot of other things that might change the feel of a particular section is certainly something that we should consider doing, but it's also something that we should make sure that everyone in the church is on board with because I think it's a little bit more significant. If I said, um, uh, come to church on Sunday, and I said, oh, I'm going to clarify that. Come to church on Sunday at 10 o'clock and at 11 o'clock. I'm not changing the meaning at all. I'm just clarifying it some. If I say, come to church on Sunday at 12 o'clock and 2 o'clock, then I'm, I'm changing the meaning of what has commonly been understood with that. I'm, that's probably not the greatest example. My point is simply to say, I am completely fine with us saying, let's write a particular section from the ground up because we think it'll be clearer if we do that. My only tension is making sure we do it in a way that stays true to the original intent of those who put together the statement of faith and that reflects what we as a congregation accept and believe. So that's the, the ethical side of it. The practical side of it is, so let's say that we do a study on the Holy Spirit, which again, I'm, I'm fine with doing that. Let's say we do a study on the Holy Spirit. how do we arrive at a phrasing of condensing all of those ideas into a specific statement? Is it simply that I try to summarize them and then I read a paragraph to you and you tell me what's good and bad about it? I mean, it's something that, that I think we're going to have to think about a little bit. And even as we go into uh, revising some of these sections and voting on them, I think it's something that I'm, I'm still thinking about what's the best way to do this in a way that's clear and that's helpful and that doesn't get into an argument of you use the word that and you should have used the word which and you know some of those kinds of things. Uh, so, so those are the, my two challenges I think with connection to, to rewriting some of these sections. But um, at the end here or, or as we get further along I will, I will read some from me, for you from uh, a larger statement that I wrote on the Holy Spirit and, and we could have some discussion on whether we think some of those things are helpful to, to add or, or not necessary to add to this. Uh, the next phrase, he bears witness to the truth of the gospel in preaching and in testimony. Uh, I don't think that we would argue with that. Um, I think that they're drawing that from John 15:25 on the back of the page. They have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, he is, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. And so he bears witness to the truth of the gospel in preaching and testimony. Um, okay. Right. What's, what's helpful, what brings clarity without changing it? And I agree that's, that's what we need to make sure. So I don't know that we need to scrap it and start from scratch. I think we, we can build a, a frame based on what's there sure. and then establish the facts and the scripture that proves that and then maybe just adjust the wording so there is more clear. Sure. Right. Right. And I think that there, I think we have to recognize that when we're trying to condense the truth from 66 books of the Bible into a paragraph on one specific topic, we're necessarily going to leave some things out. So as long as we're not leaving out the most important things, obviously, that's, that's the challenge. What are the most important things to include there? I agree, too, though, what you were saying about uh, looking at the, even looking at judgment or, or looking at the, 
finding a verse that supports it more. Is there something in here that would create unnecessary uh, division? Sure. And if, if it's not absolutely necessary, if it's not a, a must-have, right. then maybe we should not be as uh, dogmatic about it. Right. Yeah. And I guess connected with that comes back to the question of if someone holds to the central truths of the faith, they believe that there is one God who is three in one, they believe in the full deity and humanity of Christ, they believe in the one way of being saved through faith in Christ by God's grace. Would we let someone join the church if they had a different view on the end times? Would we let someone join the church if they had a different view on baptism? Maybe second one, no. Okay. So here's the practical, the practical issues with those things. You say, well, it's fine that you have a different view on the end times. Well, then what if that person is a person that tends to be kind of cantankerous and they want to go around and argue with people about it all the time? So I think that uh, that's the challenge. I mean, biblically, we, we say, okay, well, technically, all you have to do to join the church is be a Christian and be baptized. Well, then why do we have a statement of faith that's so detailed, partially to preserve unity in the church, partially because I think we have to recognize that there's been 2,000 years of church history and a lot of discussion on a lot of these topics, and so we can't entirely set that aside. And so, yeah, so, so in terms of importance, we say baptism, no, we've got to be in agreement on that. We say end times, eh, and yet... 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10 says that the Thessalonians turn from their sin, they turn to God to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven. And so if we have a concept of the end times that doesn't include waiting for a son from heaven, then maybe that's an example of something that's not true Christianity. So that's the challenge, that's the tension. Sandra, did you have a thought? In what way? Okay. Sure. 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 Right. And, and, and I guess that there's, there's different levels of broadness to what we're talking about when we say end times. If you, if you include something like the doctrine of purgatory, that would be that would be out here. I guess what I was thinking was more, you know, there's a, there's a trend in Christianity. What's that? Post-millennial rapture. Yeah. When does the rapture happen? Is there a literal millennium? Some of those sorts of things. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> you could let it go way out here. So I think that what's written, and the more I've thought about it, the more I've thought, even if it is not, even if someone can go to heaven without believing a particular thing that's in our statement of faith, I do think that there, some of those things are so central to the unity of the church that practically speaking we should probably have them in there, even though we want us to say, as long as you believe in Jesus, come on in. So, so that's, that's the tension. Yes? I think somewhat the, the litmus test yeah. of if it's possible is, you know, if somebody comes here, they move from out of state, and they were always taught post-tribulation rapture. Yeah. That's what they're going to believe. Right. Likely. Right. But if they come in and we say, you know, what are your views on this? And we explain that we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And they say, well, this is what I've been taught, but I'm not 100% certain. Then obviously there's teachability there. Right. And there's the opportunity to, to grow. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's where, the, where it probably lies. Right. With the understanding that if they said, you know what, I've been here for five years, I've heard a bunch of messages on it, I'm still not convinced, that we'd be willing to say to that person, well, in the interest of being true to our statement of faith, we would encourage you to find another church, not because we think you're not a Christian, but simply because if you're not assenting to these core doctrines, this is probably not the best place for you. And, 
And I think that's part of why churches don't want to have these discussions about membership because we either want to make the bar really high so only the people that we want to get in get in, partially because we don't want to have to have discussions about people leaving a church. And so I, I think it just takes a great deal of wisdom, which we can, let's keep talking about those things. Let's go on to the next phrase for sake of time, uh, that he is the agent of the new birth. I don't think anyone's going to argue that the Holy Spirit is not the agent of the new birth. Uh, John 3, on uh, the third page, top of the third page, Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Um, the born of water, just to clarify there, uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, there are some people who would look at this verse and use it as a support for the idea of, of being baptized to be saved. How do we know that you don't have to be baptized to be saved? One example would be the thief on the cross. He says, Jesus, I am trusting in you. Receive me into your kingdom. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And obviously, he's hanging on the cross. There's no opportunity for him to be baptized as we would understand baptism. Others would take that phrase, if I remember correctly, and see it as the being born of water as being born physically, and then the being born of the Spirit as being born spiritually. And so it's not like you have to be born physically to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying you've already, that's already happened. You also have to be born of the Spirit because it's not enough just to be born the first time which I think that understanding fits a whole lot better with the context of what Jesus is saying in Nicodemus. Nicodemus, uh, Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how can I be born again? I can't, I'm a grown man. I can't go back and, and be birthed again by my mother. Jesus is saying, no, it's not just, that's already happened. You have to also be born of the Spirit. There has to be a giving of spiritual life, which is a work of the Holy Spirit. There, uh, a potential passage that we could consider adding in support of the, the agent of the new birth would be um, potentially some of the verses from Ephesians 2 about you were dead in your sins, but he has made you alive uh, in Christ. And so that, that could be a, fra- uh, a section that we would add there. This last one... Okay, you don't like the term agent? Okay. Okay. So you think real estate agent. Maybe some of us think like spy. Okay. That, so we could simply say that he gives, that he accomplishes the new birth. Something along those lines. Uh, both, but I think that it is, um, and I'm trying to think of some of the other verses that would support this, and I'm you know, one of those, in the moment, I'm drawing a blank on some of them, but there are passages that would say that the Holy Spirit gives us life, and so you know, I'll have to look up and see what some of those are, but I, I, think, I think they said agent because he's the one who carries it out. But I think it's, he's not only the one carrying it out, he's also the one that's doing the work, the, 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 who's giving the, the life to uh, those who trust in Jesus. And so, but I, I hear you with the, with the word agent. I mean, again, it's, uh, it's one of those things that is not a way that we commonly speak. Any further thoughts on that one before we go on to the next one? Yes? No? Okay, we can come back to it. Uh, This last one uh, brings in most of the rest of the verses on the third page. That he seals, endues, that's something that we probably will need to clarify, uh, guides, teaches, witnesses, sanctifies, and helps the believer in accordance with the Scriptures. What does it mean that he seals? Okay, assurance... All right, and if you look on the third page there at Ephesians 1, 13, uh, uh, yeah, the end of verse 13, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit and of promise. 
the in him would be in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who is the seal. The Holy Spirit who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And so that he seals um, is essentially that he is the down payment of our inheritance. He's the, he is the promise that the, the inheritance is going to come in full. In the same way when you buy a house, you put the down payment as a show of good faith that yes, I'm going to keep making the payments and eventually buy the house. The Holy Spirit is God in reverse saying, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I will also give you all of the other blessings that I've promised you in connection with salvation. So even though the word seals is not, um, maybe not the clearest, I'm not sure the best way to say it concisely apart from that word. So that's something we could certainly think about. What about endues? What do you think endues mean? Means. Basically, grants or gives power. So, probably coming from Matthew 3.11, just as I was looking through the verses on the back page. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So, this is uh, the word of John the Baptist with regard to Christ about what Christ is going to accomplish. Um, Yes, Jonathan. Right. Yeah. I think empowers is probably something that would be a little clearer than induce. Good. My coffee has endued me with energy for the day, right? Uh, what's that? Yeah. Uh, guides. John sixteen thirteen. Uh, in connection also with the granting of power is Acts eleven sixteen. And this is a this is a question for us. The, this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is it? When is it accomplished? And what does it accomplish? Uh, let me just read you an excerpt from this. In. Um, so when you, when you talk about the works of the Holy Spirit, there's a couple of different ways to organize our thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit. We could just simply say, here's all the things that he does, or we could say, here are the things that he's done in specific periods of history. The second has some slight advantage in my mind because the Holy Spirit has worked similarly but somewhat differently in different points in history. For example... In creation, that was a one-time thing. In some of the things that he did in connection with the people of Israel in the Old Testament, um, for example, he, uh, I think he gave spiritual life to followers of God um, and dwelled within them. I think, but, but here are some of the things that were specific to the time period of Israel. Theocratic anointing and occupational indwelling. Those are two, two concepts to start your morning with. But simply put, God, the Holy Spirit, gave specific help to the kings of Israel so that they would rule well. So when it says the Spirit departed from Saul, that's what happened. The Holy Spirit's enabling him to rule well was pulled away. It wasn't a loss of salvation because I think we would probably argue Saul never showed any evidence of being a Christian. It was a loss of God's blessing on him as a king as ministered by the Holy Spirit. Related to that was the specific enabling of the Spirit of the particular skills of some of the workers in both the tabernacle and the temple. And there's a bunch of passages that I could, I could give you on that if you were wanting to study that out further. Uh, but, but those two things, theocratic anointing and occupational indwelling, Skill for ruling well, skill for building and designing and, and crafting well, I think were specific to the Old Testament and to the nation of Israel. Uh, that's probably true. Um, I, I do wonder if we saw that um, 
if we would see that also, for example, in the book of Acts on a few of the New Testament prophets like Agabus and so forth, but uh, there certainly was a much larger outpouring in the Old Testament of prophetic anointing. Um, I'll have to think about that some more. Uh, during the life and ministry of Christ, one of the unique things that the Spirit did was to be involved in the conception of uh, Christ in Mary's womb. That was a one-time unique ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, his relationship in guiding and sustaining Christ was also uh, unique in that respect. Uh, when we come to the ministry of the Spirit for the church, and the reason I want to read this is to compare it with this phrase and see if there's anything that, that clarifies or that we would want to compare. Um, so here's what I have here. In his ministry to the church, the Holy Spirit primarily accomplishes salvation and sanctification. Salvation begins with regeneration, giving spiritual life to the spiritually dead. John 3, John 6, 2 Corinthians 3, Titus 3, 5. Uh, it's not by works of righteousness that we've done, but by the washing of the Spirit. And um, I'm forgetting the last phrase there, but Titus 3.5 would be another verse that's connected with that idea. So, giving spiritual life. In the moment of salvation, the Spirit also, and, and this is where I'm, I'm trying to draw the parallel here about the timing of these things. He baptizes the believer, baptizing the believer is not water baptism, it is spirit baptism, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's the placing of a New Testament believer into the body of the church. It's not the same as you joining a local church. It's the Holy Spirit uniting you in this moment to Christ and to all other believers. So that's the, the, the baptism idea which makes uh, the believer a part of the body of Christ in fellowship with all others who have been regenerated by salvation. He also indwells the believer. And again, this phrase was written for seminary. It could certainly be clarified, which is not a locative, but rather a relational change of proximity. What do I mean by that? It's not an actual distance you measure with a ruler. It's a, in terms of a relationship, our nature, our status, our connection with God changes. God is everywhere, so I don't get closer to God by walking to this side of the room than being standing right here. And yet there's the practical reality of a connection of relationship in which we have a different sort of relationship with some people than we do with others. And... Just trying to express that clearly and accurately, I think there's parallels with a phrase like the sun rose today. Strictly speaking, does the sun rise? No. Right. Do we, are we further away from God if there is sin or if we don't belong to Him as His people? From the perspective of God's omnipresence, no. From the perspective of our standing in His sight, yes with regards to before salvation, no with regards to after salvation. And that goes into, in this perspective. I am not further away from God if I sin in terms of I'm now not His child. I'm still His child. But there's a problem that has to be dealt with. And so this is, this is one of the challenges of trying to, to phrase all of that. And so that phrase that I put there can certainly be, be worked on. Uh, but the, to finish out the paragraph, by which God himself dwells personally with human beings, the Spirit will also finally resurrect the bodies of Christians who have died according to Romans 8 and verse 11. So that's his saving work. Regeneration, baptizing, indwelling, and eventually resurrecting. The sanctifying work of the Spirit includes giving assurance to individual believers concerning the genuineness of their faith. Hebrews 2. This assurance was not fully possible in the Old Testament, but is made certain by His seal and pledge of their final salvation. That's what we were just talking about. He purifies the believer, which is also called sanctification. And, and to just to pause, 
If you wanted to put that in the previous paragraph and connect it with salvation instead of sanctification, I think you could connect it at either spot, potentially legitimately. Um, the Spirit also fills the believer, which is to say the believer is living in obedience to the control of the Spirit. Filling is contrasted with indwelling, in that indwelling is permanent, while filling is dependent on the obedience of the Christian. Additionally, the Holy Spirit prepares believers for service by giving them the fruit of the Spirit and spiritual gifts. These are not listed exhaustively in Scripture and are for the service of the body of Christ, not for personal gain. Another aspect of the Spirit's work is His unifying of the church body. Finally, He intercedes on the behalf of believers before God the Father, Romans 8. We don't always know what to pray, but the Spirit uh, takes our requests to God when we pray with groanings that can't be uttered even as Christ the high priest mediates on their behalf, 1 Timothy 2, 5. So, uh, a that's lot... Yes. <laughs> and so the, the phrase that's here is, 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 is good. So, so in terms of parallels, he seals, he empowers, okay? That would come in with the idea of spiritual gifts, of um, the fruit of the Spirit. He empowers us to obey God. He guides us. That would be connected, I think, with the filling of the Spirit. The extent to which we are being guided by the Holy Spirit is connected with the extent to which we're obeying the clear commands that God has already given to us. Uh, he teaches us. My only hesitation with that word teaches is if you look on the third page there where it says on John 16:13, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. I think it could be argued that that verse was specifically written to the apostles for a limited ministry of the Holy Spirit in that specific time, in the sense that I don't believe that we would argue that the Holy Spirit teaches us in the same way today that he taught the apostles then in those early years of the founding of the church. That's something we could have further discussion on, but again, I think he does teach us. I'm just wondering if that would be the verse that we would want to support it from versus something like, you know, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Uh, that he witnesses, and I think the witnesses is Romans 8, 14, um, especially verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So instead of witnesses, I wonder if we would want to use a word like assures of salvation, something like that, uh, because I think that that's the way that they're using the word witnesses there. And we think witness is giving the gospel to someone, which is true, uh, but I don't think that that's the way that that word is being used there. And feel free to let me know if I'm wrong on that, but... I think based on the verse that's given in connection there at the end, I think they're using witness in the sense of t uh, assures us that we are children of God. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a legitimate use of the word. I'm just not sure if it makes... Yes? No? Okay. Okay. Uh, that he sanctifies us, if you look on uh, the end there. Oh, look, that's the verse we're going to look at this morning. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.13, We should give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And the sanctification is both an initial setting apart of the believer toward holiness and an ongoing work of, of of creating that holiness in us, right, throughout our Christian lives. Um, so he sanctifies us and then he helps, and that would come in Romans 8. Uh, we could say helps, we could say intercedes, both are present in the passage, uh, depending on what we had in mind for um, we could, you go ahead. Right. So, you know, I was, I was thinking guides, teaches, helps. It's kind of three different ways to say the similar thing. He works in us and through 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the verse there specifically gives the idea of helping in our prayers, but it's not like pr our prayers is the only place at which he helps us. So, so we might want to see if there were some other things from John 14 and 16 regarding the Spirit as helper uh, that would be helpful. Well, and that's the question, too. How, how, far, how far do we elaborate? Do we right. say that he helps in conduct, he helps in prayer, he helps in worship? Sure. My only point would be, yes, I, I agree with you. I'm not saying let's make it super wordy. I'm just saying if we want to say that the Spirit helps us generally, then let's look for a verse that says the Spirit helps us generally. If we want to say the Spirit helps us in our prayers, then we'll, let's leave the verse that says He helps us in our prayers. That, that's what I'm getting at. Um, yes? Was that something that I read from that long paragraph or something that's in the statement of faith here that you're picking out from a particular phrase? I think okay. part of the question, correct me if I'm wrong, and I know I was confused about this for a long time, is when does salvation actually take place? Does it take place after you say the prayer or does it take place before that instance? And what I've learned is that it's the Holy Spirit making that regeneration possible so that you can believe and pray. Yeah. That's, that's where the Spirit is the agent. Because if, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do that work, we cannot accept what Christ did. So there has to be that initial work of the Spirit before we can believe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right, convicting unbelievers of sin, right? Yes? Right, and First uh, Peter 1, 2, I think, summarizes all this well. It says, uh, who he's writing to, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So, in terms of salvation, if we put it simply, what is the work of the triune God in salvation? God the Father chooses for salvation, the Spirit does the setting apart for salvation, and the basis on which that can take place is the death of Christ. Christ's blood is the sacrifice, the offering that, that, that atones for our sin. Um, I don't know if that helps to uh, clarify a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, we can certainly talk about that some more. Um, so who are we saved by? I think it goes back to what Bob said a little while ago, which is, or maybe it's Jonathan. When God acts, it's not as though God is acting independently. It's not as though God the Son acts independently of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So who are we saved by? We're saved by God. Which person of the triune God accomplishes our salvation? Yes. <laughs> right. So, but if we want to break it down, they do have distinct roles in the sense of the actual point of salvation. And I think that that's something that I think we'll talk about a little bit more in the sermon this morning, which is in connection with you have the idea of, of, of God's work from our perspective in the past. Take Ephesians 1, for example. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Well, that's good, and this is the part where people who uh, strongly stress free will get on the case of people who are like well but you can't just say God did that back then and so now I'm automatically a Christian now to which I would say you're right you can't just say God chose you back then so I'm a Christian now something has to happen in the present point in time and what happens in the present point in time is that the gospel is preached 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Holy Spirit takes the message of the Gospel, gives new life and understanding so that we are able and willing and even interested in hearing it. We have a response of faith and repentance. We turn away from sin. We turn to God. And in that same moment, there's all of these other things that happen. And this is where, you know, I, here's another phrase I'll throw out for you. Ordo salutis, the order of things in salvation. This is one of the things that, that people argue about. Is it regeneration, faith, repentance, sealing, baptizing? What's the specific order of all those things? Some of them are happening, happening virtually simultaneously. In fact, you think you could argue that all of them are happening virtually simultaneously. The challenge comes in of just practically, if you look at other passages in Scripture, like in Romans 3 where it says, no one seeks God, no one follows God, no one wants to know God. How do you bridge that gap? The person who stresses man's work says that the answer is, God sort of laid open the door and says, come in if you want. The person who stresses God's work in salvation says the Holy Spirit has to do a work of new life in order for you to even have the capacity to respond to the gospel message. I don't know that we have to spell it out that specifically in the statement of faith because you know, there were guys that taught me in seminary that would say the order was faith and repentance and then regeneration. Personally, I would say regeneration, then repentance and faith. The point is that God is accomplishing all of these things by means of the Holy Spirit. And I think we will... What's that? Oh, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up there. So good discussion. We can continue some of it next week if we need to. But uh, thank you for your attention, and let's, we'll head on to the service.